0: Welcome to the show, and don't forget to check out this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, as we explore everything from Space Kraken to Giant Sandworms. To get access and help support the show while hearing every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. This episode is sponsored by Audible. We often dream of a future in space as a future of prosperity. But what is involved in becoming a utopia of near endless energy and resources? Recently we've been looking at how we might become an interplanetary species, and that's focused principally on getting our civilization up and out to space and the worlds beyond, so today we'll take a look a little closer to home on what's going on back on Earth while all that is going on in space. What life could be like here for the vast majority of folks who are not involved in leaving the planet. It seems like a good time to focus on a positive future and in the near term, given that 2020 has been a heck of a year, and I'm writing this at the end of August so it's only two-thirds done, so how in this next century or maybe in the next few decades might we manage to become both a Kardashev one civilization and a post-scarcity civilization? For channel regulars you're probably already familiar with both those terms, but to review, The Kardashev Scale is a loose measurement of how powerful a civilization is, with a K1 civilization being one that uses all the power of a planet, a K2 using all the power of a star, and a K3 being one that uses all the power of a galaxy. That's it for the official scale and it doesn't necessarily imply any particular population or technological level. For instance we could potentially be a K2 Civ using all our sun's light, two billion times what hits Earth, in even a couple of centuries. Simply because the most basic way to do that, enveloping your sun in a bunch of thin foil mirrors, doesn't require much technology beyond a robot able to dig up metals on some moon or asteroid, turn them into a foil, and make copies of itself that can do the same. As we'll discuss more today, that's not really that sophisticated in terms of robotics and AI, and even something as simple as that can kick a civilization into being post-scarcity. For a given value of post-scarcity anyway. The basic definition of post-scarcity as unlimited resources wouldn't seem possible in a finite universe, so we have to modify the concept a bit to use it in a practical discussion and we'll discuss that modification of definition momentarily. But as a quick side note first, the original scale created by astronomer Nikolai Kardashev didn't extend past three, galaxy-spanning, but folks often tend to throw the idea of K4 or K5 civilizations around and indeed we actually had to ban use of the term K-10 Civilization on our Facebook forum just because it got so synonymous with magical super-aliens rather than anything useful for discussion. We just don't have a context for them, other than knowing K-9 Civilization would either be man's best friend or have a bone to pick with us. Too many unknowns, so we are trying to avoid that for discussing our future today by limiting ourselves just to those technologies that seem very plausible under known science and R&D. Though for the curious, when folks ask me for a K4 Plus scale, I usually say K4 is a galactic supercluster, K5 is the observable universe, and anything beyond that implies folks with access to beyond the cosmological event horizon or parallel universes or alternate realities. And that's a good example of a technology that if you had it would bootstrap you right into being a post-scarcity civilization by its nominal standard definition, one with no scarcity of resources at all, as you can plunder the multiverse from your backyard. Inside a finite and closed universe, that is not possible, and that does appear to be what we live in, since even if this universe is infinite, the parts we can reach by travel without fashion-like proportion are not, due to Hubble expansion. Since post-scarcity of that type seems impossible, rather than having a useless term, we modify it to something apparently possible. Since folks use the term to basically refer to a level of technology where folks are not worried about basic survival anyway, we define post-scarcity in that context, one in which folks have no major anxiety over access to basic needs, because things like food and energy and basic goods and services are so readily abundant that they are like finding some air to breathe or a glass of water to drink, just not something most folks worry about in their daily life. Of course what qualifies as a basic need is debatable, and we usually borrow from Maslow's hierarchy of needs for that, a pyramid that runs from the ground floor of basic physiological needs like food, shelter, and sleep, up to more esoteric ones of personal esteem and enlightenment. The degree to which a civilization is post-scarcity is essentially measured based on how many of those needs are easily met, how easily and abundantly they are met, and how far up the needs pyramid they are. And this can be in a lot of different ways too, for instance a cyborg who could punch through a brick wall, walk around on airless rock, and eat anything including dirt, is quite post-scarcity in terms of many needs whether he's living in a cheerful utopia or some radiation-scorched wasteland full of violent lunatics. So a civilization could end up as post-scarcity, at least in terms of the bottom tiers of physiological needs, simply by modifying themselves to be way tougher, stronger, or smarter, or all of the above. I usually say the big technologies for pushing us into post-scarcity existence are better energy availability or better automation though, as if you have either you are in a position to tip into post-scarcity. Indeed I'd argue we are already very close to it, at least those bottom tiers and in the wealthier segments of the world, and a lot of what holds us back is that energy is scale, and so is human manpower to use that energy to make things. The key notion though is that there are a ton of technologies, or even just administrative or cultural changes, that individually or grouped up with some others do offer us at least that first tier of physiological needs as post-scarcity, again that being needs so easily filled that folks don't have anxiety about getting them. Now I use Maslow's hierarchy of needs strictly because it's well known, it's got a lot of revisions and variants and debates about which stuff should be where on it but it works for our purpose as a general thermometer of how post-scarcity a civilization is. In that bottom tier of physiological needs, usually given as air, water, food, shelter, clothing, sleep, and so on, we've been post-scarcity on air and water for a long time, with some exceptions like smog-filled cities or desert lands or places torn up by war and chaos. Again there are exceptions, both for the civilization and for the individual's lifetime. Many a person might have suffered from dehydration at some point, but for most of us these are just not things we worry about. We also don't worry about the cost of making long distance phone calls or needing to make a collect call, but folks my age and older do remember when the distance or duration of a phone call was a big worry and when keeping in touch with friends or relatives in other states or countries could become cost prohibitive. Of course, even a couple centuries before that, having a relative move to a different land meant a good chance you'd never speak to them again, when the postal service wasn't cheap or fast, or even didn't exist, and when a trip home might be an extravagant luxury you saved up for years to do. Incidentally that would be an example of a tier 3 need, feelings of love and belonging, and also a good example where technology of sheer abundance, like mass production of power or food, doesn't help you out much or only indirectly. Your phone can't love you, at least not very well, but it can keep you in touch with the people who do. Infinite energy or raw materials in themselves doesn't make you tier 3 post-scarcity, because that's all things like friendship and family and romance. Of course the same computers that give us better factories and automation and production also let folks stay in touch over continents or use dating software that helps them sift through the many fishes in the ocean to find the right partner for them. It also makes for shorter, less exhausting work days, with higher prosperity to, in theory at least, spend more time with your loved ones and experience less safety and survival stresses. Note that I say in theory because in spite of us being the most prosperous civilization in human history, there's pretty good evidence we are stressed out or even more stressed out than our ancestors, and plenty of data suggests that higher personal prosperity has only a fairly loose relationship at best with happiness, stress, or contentment. Just as a reminder in there that there's no single solution magical wands and technology to make everything better, unless we're discussing something like brainwashing or drugging folks to be anxiety free, and we define that as a post-discontent society rather than post-scarcity, though it would also include an example of a monk or aesthetic meditating somewhere too. Alright, definition's out of the way, let's talk about the technologies on the radar for getting us there. And when folks ask me why I'm always so optimistic we'll get there and sooner than later, it is because while any one of these technologies might elude us or will only be developed in a way that doesn't offer as much practical benefit as we might hope, it's the sheer variety of options, any handful of which, had the potential to get the job done, that keeps me optimistic about living to see this one day. We'll start with the power issue. Becoming a K1 civilization is another example of tricky definitions because it means using all the power of an entire planet and one could argue we already do since the sun keeps the planet warm and fuels not only our crops but the whole ecology. Problem is, that definition would make every civilization that ever existed K1 civilizations, so what we really mean is either that much electricity or power under our control or more directly utilized. It's a thing to keep in mind though, right now we tend to think of developed nations as being rather big energy gluttons the average US citizen consuming about 10,000 watts on average, but this ignores all the energy feeding our crops. We are quite capable with modern technology of feeding our whole population without needing additional farmland, let alone supplemental lighting for plants, but if you grow enough people you eventually have to start powering lights to shine on those plants in some sort of vertical farming scenario or start growing your food off-world. That's a lot more than a century off though, as even if we quadrupled our numbers this century like we did last century, ending with 6.15 billion in the year 2000, we'd have about 25 billion by 2100, and that's not really a problem with modern technology, even without deforesting everything, let alone needing to power light bulbs to grow food. Though it would benefit greatly from energy abundance since you could cheaply desalinate water and produce fertilizer and produce megatons of aluminum struts or glass or polycarbonate panels for greenhouses and so on. Energy is what powers our economy so cheaper energy helps everywhere, and needless to say you get the same benefits by being more efficient with your energy usage, more so too because all the energy you use ends up as heat that you have to get rid of. It's within our ability to make a quarter of a billion square kilometers of aluminum foil up in space, sourced off the Moon, and just put that all in orbit of Earth bouncing light down on us, doubling the light on Earth. Which would make us a K1 but only for a little while before we scorch the planet. Obviously being able to double our average energy efficiency would be preferable. We hardly need that much power for now either. The Earth gets 174 quadrillion watts of power from the Sun, and that's K1. So if we're talking raw electricity being produced, that's 17.4 trillion times the average US citizen's power consumption, and if you are growing all your food hydroponically via LED lamps, you could potentially grow food for one person on a similar power budget. Incidentally we use about 9% of Earth's surface area for agriculture of one type or another, so in raw power that's a bit under 16 quadrillion watts to support just under 8 billion people, or 2 million watts, 2 megawatts per person. Hence efficiency can do a lot of good too, not just brute force energy production. As mentioned you could probably support folks on about 1% of that, using LED lamp lit crops in climate controlled facilities. See our episode on supporting a trillion people on Earth for more discussion of that, but in the short term we don't need K1 power levels. For how we can get them anyway, see our episode on power satellites, the future of fission, or fusion power, and any one of those offers huge gains in power production. I don't want to focus too much on power as we've discussed it before, along with food production, but it is a central concept to Kardashev civilizations. Again the Kardashev scale really just refers to the power being used, not how efficient, productive, or clever you are with it. Improvements in superconductors, battery storage, or even just how cheap we can produce solar panels or other energy related hardware, can any of them, all by themselves, help a lot with the energy needs? So too could something like algae genetically tailored to heavily produce feedstocks for biofuels or other genetically modified food crops. And automation obviously helps too, if you've got robots that can do all your tasks for you, you are post scarcity But we're never too interested in entirely automated production chains, just adding in a little more automation here and there to improve production rates or consumption efficiency, and that's not just the big stuff like tractors and engines, but even small stuff like the motion sensor light switches that come on and off if people are using a room or the one sorting gizmo that lets a job 10 folks do suddenly be done by 9 instead or even 1. Never underestimate the effect of the thousand tiny things in the production chains in comparison to the one big tech. I remember when the virus first hit that there were a lot of shutdowns of non-essential jobs. I got asked by a lot of folks what qualified as essential. I said if we're talking a few weeks, not too much, if we're talking longer, almost everything. I'm sure everyone remembers the toilet paper shortage of Spring 2020, but it hit a lot of things. Just personally, Sarah and I were planning to make some homemade applesauce as she'd picked up a bushel at the local orchard, and last night had us hunting for mason jars and lids and both being shocked at how many sources were out of stock and what the price was for those who weren't. And I would imagine we've all been a bit surprised by the stuff suddenly in short supply during the crisis, either by an uptick in demand or a drop off in production because it was deemed non-essential for a while or was particularly hard to operate under health safety measures now in place. This is another way you can get post-scarcity too, and its flexibility of production, an example of which would be improvements in 3D printers in terms of speed, cost, or production sophistication, I just mentioned how we had those various scarcities and we have these amazing manufacturing and distribution capabilities compared to prior generations, but they can be very slow to change over. Even if you can suddenly repurpose a factory to produce some needed widget, that widget might have a thousand different components produced elsewhere at other factories, not all of which can be rapidly retooled to produce more of that component, or the components diverted from other products that use them, or the end product adapted to use some other item we have in abundance. There are many types of waste and one of those is inventory, keeping whole buildings full of some product in case of a sudden demand, or because of some sudden drop in that demand, and food is one of the big ones in that we generally waste 30-40% to of it to various losses in harvesting, transport, storage, and at the cooking level. Some products are worse, others much more durable and cheap to store. But an ability to adapt production quickly is another lesser-mentioned technological pathway to being post-scarcity, especially since it also applies an ability to rapidly upgrade to new technologies. Right now we often run on old tech simply because the upgrade costs, in terms of both hardware and training, is so high. So too better distribution and cataloging helps a lot, For the latter some company can find out that screw number 45 might be maxed out in production from a given factory, but that screw A12 is nearly identical and sitting there in some warehouse unused. All sorts of smart software to help identify waste, be it in workflow or even day-to-day life, be it physical items or just time, energy, and personal stress expended when they needn't have been, could also do wonders for us. What other minor and non-obvious things can push us towards being post scarcely Well again it depends on which types of post-scarcity we mean. The higher need tiers often involve education for instance, and smarter workers and smarter inventors and innovators, plus more of them, can obviously help across the board. But consider the value of individual education over large classroom lectures. We all know one-on-one is better for teaching most things but it's cost prohibitive. We also know part of that is the ability of a good teacher to tailor their efforts to the pupil. And not only might interactive teaching software help with instruction, but it might help in analyzing a student to be better at tailoring that instruction. Same thing applies to almost any job or life task of course, and we are making huge improvements in such technology. Forget infinite power, a vastly more educated population will get you post-scarcity pretty quick. Something like radical life extension can make you post-scarcity too. Even ignoring that a much longer and healthier life would seem like a goal of a post-scarcity civilization, suddenly having folks in their 90s in the workforce, with all the vigor of their youth and all the experience of their lifetime, is a massive gain. So too, any of the science fiction technologies, clock Tech as we call them, like anti-gravity or perpetual motion machines or anything else that lets you bend or break the laws of thermodynamics, is instant post-scarcity, but again we're limiting ourselves to stuff on the radar. Cheaper and renewable power, cheaper water purification or desalination, cheaper production of any raw materials, any and all minor improvements along the production chain, improvements in skill or stamina of the workforce, all can take you to post-scarcity, or at least the lower tiers of need. How about those higher tiers, and what is life like in a fully post-scarcity civilization anyway? Well those higher tiers of need focus more on the psychological, the longer term, the deeper or more philosophical aspects of life. And of course the big one for discussion in post-scarcity is fears over a loss of purpose, enough that we did an episode just on that a couple years back. However, one thing we need to keep in mind, especially as we start improving all those technologies for the human condition, things in the realm of psychology or neuroscience, cybernetics or prosthetics, medical gene therapy or alteration, and education, is that people aren't likely to just be sitting around all day, listlessly soaking up the sun in some lounge chair, weighed on hand and foot by robots in a post-scarcity civilization. And I'm sure we would see a lot of that too, might as well enjoy life. But as time rolls on and technology improves that relates to raising kids, the equation might alter. We can picture a post scarcity civilization as one where everyone is indolent and lazy because they can do whatever they want their whole life, but that's ignoring their formative childhood years where they obviously cannot, as those raising them determine what they can do. You probably never have accidental pregnancies anymore and every kid who was born was conceived intentionally by people who probably were aiming for their child to be a good citizen and exceptional. In the longer term, with enough technology, that might mean every kid was a star athlete and genius by modern standards, and further augmented by interactive education technology that was cramming learnings their head better than the most enthusiastic and skilled teachers could do nowadays even one-on-one full time. They might have improved their knowledge of the mind to the point they could rehabilitate any criminal or fix any addiction or mental issue in an afternoon, a civilization like that, whose kids could probably jump in a time machine to nowadays and get a full ride to any school on an academic and athletic scholarship and get all the ethics in their early childhood too, and didn't die of old age, doesn't strike me as one prone to indolent and decadent dissent or running some horribly mismanaged and corrupt society. So even that worry that post-scarcity civilization, if reached, might be a poison pill doesn't seem very likely. What do they do with their time though? Well, some of them probably do sit around navel-gazing I'm sure, or picking up hobbies you or I would find pointless, and might or might not be, but they need to hit one other piece of the needs tier and that's things like self-esteem and pure respect. Those are hard to satisfy with sheer abundance, indeed maybe harder to satisfy, as no one's particularly impressed you can kill a deer to feed the tribe, or kill a wolf to protect the tribe anymore, or its modern equivalents. To some degree you have the advantage of the internet, which lets you find that small number of folks who share your obscure hobbies and interests, but we also have grand efforts and wonders like building all those megastructures we talk about on the show or heading off to space to conquer and tame and terraform new worlds. I get asked sometimes how we'll come up with colonists for space and I don't think even now we'd ever have a shortage of volunteers but folks often wonder if a post-scarcity civilization would find even fewer volunteers simply from losing out on all the luxuries and securities they were used to. Quite to the contrary, they probably wouldn't have to do without those much anyway, but if you have a civilization that's full of folks whose technology and techniques have made nearly superhuman, I suspect most might find the challenge of the frontier quite to their taste. And we'll look at some more of those challenges as we continue our Becoming an Interplanetary Species series but as for becoming a Kardashev one post-scarcity civilization, it won't happen tomorrow but I firmly believe we'll get that capacity for it fairly soon, maybe a generation, maybe a century, but I don't see it being longer. Hard Road still had to get there to be sure, but sometimes the journey is as good as the destination, at least it gives us a purpose, and a pretty awesome one at that. We were talking about clock tech earlier, technologies so far up the ladder that they are indistinguishable from magic to us, and how any of those sorts of super technologies might elevate us to post-scarcity all on its own. And it reminded me that it's very hard to find examples of post-scarcity utopias in fiction, even when we do see them they tend to be intrinsically flawed or hiding over a dark side. Now that is because it's fiction and genuine utopias make for very boring stories but I think it often paints a more pessimistic view of future civilization, in much the same way just hearing bad news all day long can make you feel like the world is coming unglued even when many things are going very well. Not every author paints bleak pictures though, and Arthur C. Clarke, famous for novels like 2001, Rendezvous with Rama, and Childhood's End, and for whom we named the term Clarke Tech, was one of the great sci-fi writers of the 20th century, and one who often painted a more hopeful image of the future. His novel Childhood's End, which was his first novel, is one where we see humanity encounter a peaceful and benevolent alien species who brings on a golden age for us, and is one of his most celebrated works that has inspired so many other stories down the years. So this month's Audible Audiobook of the Month goes to Arthur C. Clarke's Childhood's End. You can find that audiobook along with the rest of Arthur C. Clarke's many excellent novels and short stories over at Audible. They also have podcasts, guided wellness programs, theatrical performances, and exclusive Audible Originals. Indeed they have over three centuries worth of audio if you just hit the play button and ran through every title. If you want access to that massive collection of great audiobooks, like Childhood's End, you can join Audible for a 30-day free trial, and Audible members not only get discounts on any audiobooks they buy, but a free book every month. Additionally, they are now giving unlimited access to their Audible Originals, you can start listening today with a 30-day Audible free trial. Just visit the link in the episode description, Audible.com Isaac, or text Isaac to 500 So we're into November now and we've got a full schedule. Next week we'll be looking at the concept of interstellar trade, then next Sunday we have a bonus episode coming up on the Fermi Paradox and the Prime Directive, the notion that aliens might be out there but don't contact us because they have rules against it. Then we'll be taking a look at asteroid mining, orbital settlements, and life as a space colonist. If you want to learn when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel. And if you'd like to help support future episodes, you can donate to us on Patreon or our website, isaacarthur.net, which I'll link in the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums, where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episode and many other futuristic ideas. Until next time, thanks for watching and have a great week.